Hey guys, this is Jeff Stanek with Figured Out Baseball. Got a great Figured Out Baseball podcast today that I'm very excited about. Uh, we're being joined today by Brian Moses, who's the head coach at McPherson College, an NAI school in McPherson, Kansas. Um, very, very excited to talk to him. He's got a great background, and I'll give you some of that background now before we jump into questions with him. He is a native of Pengrove, California. He played collegiately at Santa Rosa Junior College and then uh, transferred from there and graduated from Sonoma State, a Division II school in California. Got his degree in communications um, while at, at Sonoma State. He's about to enter his fifth season at McPherson as the head coach. That'll be the spring of 21. will be his fifth season. But before he got there, I'll give you a kind of a timeline. I uh, spent some time as a head coach um, a high school head coach at Skyline High School in Idaho from 2000, springs of 2011 and 12. He was an assistant coach at Simpson, which is an NAIA school in Redding, California. In 2011, he got his master's degree from Western Kentucky. Springs of 2013 through 15, he was the head coach at Antelope Valley, an NAIA school in Lancaster, California. In three seasons at Antelope Valley, he compiled an 82 and 56 overall record. The fall of 2015, he was hired to be an assistant coach at Cal State Northridge, a Division I school, obviously, in California. Uh, but then in the spring of 16, he jumped to be an assistant coach at Brown University, uh, a Division I school in the Ivy League in Providence, Rhode Island. And then very quickly was hired the next season for the spring of 2017. He was hired as the head coach at McPherson. In his first season there, they were picked preseason to finish last in the conference, but ended up winning 24 games and qualifying for the postseason. In the spring of 2018, the team went 30-25 and 25 overall. That was a school record for wins in only his second season there. Uh, he had seven all-conference players, as well as the freshman of the year on his 2018 team. In 2019, McPherson went 36-17. and 17. That was the most wins in school history again they went 20 and 11 in conference play that year they had eight players named to the all-conference team as well as uh, the conference's gold glove winner in 2020 the team started 18 and 7 before the season was cut short due to covid uh, he recently completed his doctoral work in sport management from concordia in chicago uh, coach moses very much appreciate your time and appreciate you joining us on the podcast today yeah, likewise, Jess. Man, you you made me sound you made me sound pretty good right there. I, I appreciate that. Hey, man, I wouldn't be able to do it if the if the resume wasn't good. I love talking to guys that win and and uh, you know your background and just the, kind of moving around from different places. Those are all things that are very interesting to me. So I'm pumped to get in the podcast and just excited to be joined by uh, by somebody who's done a lot of things and has won games. And and again, those are those are the type of people I really love to have on the podcast the most. So again, appreciate. Um, you taking some time with us today. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Got your happy price, Priceline. Uh, I, I typically like to start with something from the from the uh, bio that stands out. You've got several places that I could start, but I would like to ask kind of a strange question, maybe to begin with. Uh, very few coaches in the game today have their doctorate in anything. First of all, I'm sure it's because of the time that it takes, and uh, you know, college coaching is 
it's very consuming, very time consuming. And uh, but you're one of the few guys who has done that. What made you decide to want to you know go all the way through, uh, you know, get your master's degree and then continue on and get your doctorate? Uh, what made you decide to want to continue to go to school and get that level of education, that level of degree? Yeah, I mean, I, my goal was to take my education as far as I can, and um, I did that, and I'm really proud of it. I, I don't exactly know how I'm going to utilize it. Um, currently, right now, I'm utilizing it. I've been added as a member of administration here, so I'm an, I'm an assistant athletic director now as, long, as well as a coach, so I'm sure my doctorate has helped with that. Um, but you know what? I, I, I really want to be strong uh, with my education. Um, I think that my time at the Ivy League really, really uh, bumped me to, to work harder on, on my PhD because I was surrounded by such um, cognitively inclined people. And so I just kept going and working. And uh, you never know where baseball is going to take you, Jeff. I've been all over the country. And I certainly love what's going on here at McPherson College. But, of course, you never know what's going to happen. And I want to be able to be highly educated um, so, so I can maybe separate myself from the rest uh, down the road. Obviously, this is a long way away. You're still a young guy, but at, at some point, a lot of colleges or a lot of coaches, um, you know, later in their career, look into athletic director positions. And I'm sure that uh, having your doctorate wouldn't hurt with that either. Is I know it's a that maybe something's not uh, in your immediate future whatsoever. But is that something that you maybe have thought of when you were getting it? Like, hey, if someday if I decide to jump into the administrative side of things, if I want to be an AD somewhere, this could be helpful. Or was it was that not so much of a thought? Well, I think it's a little bit of a thought. I know, I know, my wife wants me to do that because I'll, I'll be home a little more. But, but uh, I, you know, I'm not ready to get off the field, and I, and I don't. It's weird, you know. I'm 36, and uh, I guess that's somewhat of a young coach. And when you're coaching and you love it, and you don't think about ever getting off the field. But I think there'll be a day where that comes, and, and hopefully, with my PhD, I'll, I'll be prepared for that. You're someone that's moved around a good bit. Uh, you coached high school ball in Idaho, and, and as a uh, you're you're a California. Well, you know you you grew up in California. You played in California, but somehow got your first coaching job um, in Idaho, <laughs> um, and then from there you you know you're in California again. You were in Rhode Island. Um, now you find yourself in Kansas. Uh, how what can you tell people that have never experienced it? Just why? You know why move around so much? Was that something that was intended, or is is baseball just uh, one of those things where there there are only so many opportunities, and you kind of have to go where the opportunity is? Can you try, kind of talk about that a little bit? Just your experience moving around so much. I have an odd story. So I mean, out of college, I was a communications major, and I was um, I was the head of um, of our sports department in the, in, for the school's radio station. So. I took that experience and I went to baseball's winter meetings, Major League Baseball's winter meetings that, that year, um, and I landed a job with the Boise Hawks um, doing their middle innings at their pre- and post-game show. And so that's how I started in Boise, Idaho. And then I, I got out of broadcasting. I didn't think I was going to make a lot of money. Um, and then I, I moved over to the eastern side of the state where they had a job open um, to, to, co to coach high school baseball. So that's where the coaching journey started. And again, you mentioned where I've been. And I always, whenever I talk to somebody who wants to be a head coach and they ask me for advice, if they tell me that they don't want to move or they don't want to go far, I just look right at them and say, you're, you're not going to make it. You have to go where the opportunities are. You have to be prepared to move. You have to be prepared to grind. 
I've slept in press boxes. I've slept in clubhouses. I've been in jobs where I'm not making money, but I know I'm working towards my goal. And if you're not prepared for that journey, you, you can't do it. That's how I was as a young coach, and and I and I, you know, admittedly lost that when uh, when my oldest daughter was born, and um, you know, I, I really commend guys that that are still able to do that, and and the families that uh, that are willing to move, and not that my parent, my kids wouldn't wouldn't move, and actually. Since I left college baseball, we've moved we've moved several times anyway. Uh, but as a young coach, I kind of wanted to go anywhere. My parents, my first coaching job was at uh, was in Pittsburgh, about two hours from where I'm from. But then I took a job in Iowa, which was about eleven and a half hours from where I'm from. I'd never been to the state of Iowa. Didn't even go out there to visit before I took the job. Just talked to the coach. Thought it was a good opportunity and went. And uh, my parents were kind of like, "Really, Iowa?" And I said, "Hey, this is the best opportunity. I've got to go." And from there, met my wife when I was there and. Um, you know, my next job was in South Carolina. It's funny you say you've slept in press boxes. Uh, when I got a job at Winthrop in South Carolina, uh, which was, uh, to me, was like, was an unbelievable opportunity to go down to a Division One school down south. They had a uh, an amazing stadium, you know, better than any stadium I've ever, especially uh, for the teams I played for and coached for. Like, the, the facilities there were amazing. A, a town in South Carolina, like, I was living the dream, you know, being in the southeast in baseball, Division One baseball. When I first got there, didn't have an apartment, and I slept in the players' lounge. And uh, the players got on, the freshmen got there for orientation, and I was sleeping in the players' lounge, and had never met any of the freshmen. And one day they, um, well, had never met a lot of them, I guess. And one day the guys came in in the middle of the night to hit, <laughs> like two o'clock in the morning. They, a bunch of freshmen came to hit, turn on the lights, and they find me sleeping in there. And I'm like, what? What are you guys doing? You know, you're disoriented in the middle of the night, and they're like, what are you doing in here? But uh, yeah, I know how that experience goes. Oh, it's totally, it's totally like that. And uh, the players, they don't really get it at first. They're like, why is this coach, why doesn't he have a house on a, a good neighborhood? And it's like, it, it doesn't it doesn't happen like that. And the only reason why I was really able to do it, Jeff, is because I have a one-year-old son now, but I wasn't married at the time when we were moving around. And um, I, didn't have, I didn't have any family yet. I was able to sustain it, but... The players think that, like, when you're done with college, you're making money and you're good. And it's like, well, it depends on what you want to do. So uh, that's a funny story you just told. Yeah. Yes, the money part of it is that's not why, you, you know, you don't coach for money. And if you're lucky enough to get a job someday that pays well, you know, you're one of the few out there. There, there are so many guys, and I'm sure it's like this in most other sports as well. Uh, I don't know if you can group football and basketball, you know, coaching at the college level in with, with the baseballs and the and the soccers of the world. But uh, there's a lot of college coaches out there that, that grind and that, that you don't make a lot of money. You give lessons and you work camps and do things like that to make ends meet. Um, did you Can you tell people about what your experience was like? You know, I know one of the reasons that people move around, young coaches move either for a, a, a job that's either at a higher level, for more responsibility, or for more pay primarily. Um or unless you, you find a, a program that you think is going to, you know, is really a lot better on the field. But in your experience, can you talk a little bit about just why, you know, why to, why you moved, and um, you know, if there were any points, I guess, where you kind of thought, like, I don't know how much longer I can keep doing this. Yeah, yeah, I could touch on that, and just just to go back on on making 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 money. You know, it's depressing. I have a, I have a, and I, and I make, my money's fine now, but when you're a young coach, it's different. You know, when, when you, uh, when you have an alumni who just graduated a year ago, he, I had a kid call me and say, I want to donate $700 to the program. 
And I said, what the hell are you talking about? How do you have money like that? And then you have to, you have to think, he didn't take my path, you know? <laughs> he, he has a lucrative job now. Um, so it's kind of where it hits, hits home. Um, but to, to answer your question, in, in moving different places, um, you know, I, I, early on I was kind of scared. Um, I worked in Reading as, as an assistant coach there for a fantastic head coach. He's not coaching there anymore, but, um, you know, I was just thinking I'm not making a lot of money. I, I live in a little apartment. I'm young, um, and I just got really lucky. When I was 25, 26 years old, I got my first head coaching job, and it kind of led me to stay in it and, and stick with it. Um, I wasn't necessarily ready to give up when I was when I was younger, but I was wondering, you know, how how much longer will I be able to do this? Um, you know, our our uh, am I going to be able to sustain money and not borrow from my parents? to make five dollars an hour <laughs> so so i kind of i kind of uh, was panicking at that point but once i got that first head job i knew i just had to put the time in jeff and then be successful uh i got no, i got noticed after that so I, I i got a little lucky on my path i think most guys that stick with it can say at some point they got lucky they got a break they they just were in the right place at the right time or whatever it was and you know, I, I don't like to talk, I try to use the stay out of the way too much on the podcast, but I just, you and I have a, a, a lot of similarities in some ways, and uh, not that I was ready to get out, but I met my wife when I was coaching uh, my second job, and I was living in a dorm when I got out there, living in a dorm at a junior college, so you're living in a dorm with, you know, 18, 19-year-olds, and I was on a meal plan, and, and I was making, you know, okay money, but with no housing costs and uh and and really a lot of your meals paid for like the money i was making was pretty darn good but then i met i met my wife uh, or my future wife and at that time like i knew right when i met her that this is somebody i want to spend you know i want to spend the rest of my life with i really i kind of knew that right away but it's like can you really be in a dorm <laughs> can you live in a dorm and be as an adult and be in a serious relationship with somebody so i, I really i kind of started looking for jobs after my second year there because of that it's not that i did i had no problem with the school um I, I i was excited to be there we were really good um my second year there we won 40 games for the first time in program history and and you know things were moving i was the recruiting coordinator hitting coach it was a great gig but I started looking around for that reason, and, and thankfully that was the year that uh, that I Winthrop called me, uh, and, and even that was like I worked the camp there a couple of years before, uh, developed a little bit of a relationship with the pitching coach, you know, saw him saw him out in the summer recruiting one summer, and we just we kind of BS. He said, "What are you doing?" I said, I, "You know, kind of keep my eyes open if anything's anything's out there, anything's available." And uh, he said, our, our volunteer job's open. And I said, well, I'd love to apply for it, you know, love to have that. And he said, well, send a resume. I did, and I didn't, get, I didn't get a call for probably six weeks. I heard nothing for like six weeks, and then just out of the blue got a call. And that first phone call was my phone interview. <laughs> no prep time. I just shut the door and started talking for a couple hours, and, uh, and, and things went from there. But it was... You know, had that not happened, I don't know what we would have done. I, I mean, I, I don't think I would have gotten out, but I... You know, it's just funny how things worked out like that and allowed me to uh, to coach and, and to have a real apartment <laughs> with my future yeah. wife. And uh, so, yeah. And that's how it starts. Like, uh, you don't get to just jump into a salary job. You're, you're going to be you're going to be a volunteer or a volley, as we call them, or you're going to be a GA. If you're, you're, and you're lucky to land a GA spot. You are lucky to get that. So, 
um, yeah, I mean, that's kind of how it begins. So that's definitely. Yeah, there aren't that, many, aren't that many graduate assistant jobs out there at this point. Did you have any, um, as a young coach, did you have to do anything strange, like have any, uh, like a second job, part-time job or anything like that to, to kind of make ends meet at any point in your yeah. career? Yeah, that, that job in Reading, when I worked at Simpson, I worked at a gym. And they hired me as a personal trainer. Man, I, I didn't, I didn't know what the hell I was doing. <laughs> I, mean, I had, I had clients that were like 80 years old and had a lot of restrictions. I wasn't used to it, and you know, I was just kind of making, making it up as I went along. And I, I had to go in there in the morning. I think I worked from like six to ten. Uh, but then after that, I went, I went to work. But yeah, I mean, I, I had to have another job to kind of sustain what I was doing at the time. And uh, yeah, it, you know, that's uh, that's another part of it too. Is you're going to need to supplement your income at times. It's not easy, and for most guys, you know, for guys that fight through it, especially at lower levels, there's there's a lot that people uh, should know about a lot of coaches and, and a lot of things to respect. And um, Coach Moses, if we can go back to your high school and, and college playing days, um, I mean, I'm interested for someone that's that's your your age. Uh, as you're, you're a young head coach, especially you were hired. Um, well, 2017 was your first spring. You're 36 now, so let me do some quick math. That would make you would have been 33 when you got the well, 33 in the spring of that your first year, right? Well, at McPherson College, 33. At McPherson, yeah. yes, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, since there, you you have turned that program around very, very quickly. There obviously had to have been some good mentors along the way. Can we go back to like high school? Um, or, or even college, do you have some coaches, or did you did you have some coaches at that time who uh, kind of gave you some things for your foundation as a coach now, and obviously a very successful coach? Um, did you have anybody back then that really stuck out to you as a as a big mentor for your life? Now, maybe somebody you stay in touch with today. Yeah, freshman year in high school, I played for a gentleman by the name of Chuck Jackson, who has since he's since passed away, uh, but. He just like, he just loved you. He just showed that he cared. And um, he wasn't afraid to show his real personality. And that's the way I operate. I, I'm myself around the kids. I let them be themselves. I mean, sure, we're disciplinarians, but at the same time, we really care about their experience. And if, if I don't think their experience is going well, then I'm gonna pull them aside and see how I can help them. Um, and so Chuck Jackson was the first to do that. And I was only 14, 15 years old, but I loved that guy. I could have played for him for, for years after that. Um, um, I would say that uh, jumping ahead, uh, that first job that I had with Rick Bassetti at Simpson College, he was the head coach. And at the time, he was also the mayor of the town. So like this guy, and he was a former Major League Baseball player, put in like 13 years. And so I really respected this guy's resume, and uh, he let me have have a lot of power. And I know that you said uh, off air you were talking about how maybe you didn't have as much power as you wanted in your first job, and um, he let me kind of jump into it. And um, I, 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 he let me recruit. He let me jump on guys if they were if they were out, out of line. Um, he let me coach third base and they work with hitters. I mean, I can remember there was a, we played at Oregon Tech one year, and there was a snowstorm. And uh, that came in in like the middle of, the, of an inning, and I was coaching third. He was relaying signs to me. I couldn't see a damn thing. I couldn't see what he was doing. And so I just started running my own inning, and we just broke out. We had a three or four run inning, and I kind of put some plays on. 
he comes back and I, I go back and he goes, Coach, he goes, Moses, what the hell are you doing out there? I said, I said, I said, Rick, I can't see you. I can't see what you're doing. I just ran my own inning. And he goes, oh, well, keep up the good work out there. <laughs> uh, that, that guy, uh, I'll always remember. And uh, he's still kicking. He's a, he's a hell of a guy. That's awesome. It's great to have some mentors like that. must have been pretty cool to be around a uh, kind of a, a tenured major leaguer there for a while. Uh, he was awesome. And he, had, he had a lot of old school ways, and players had to adapt to that. But, yeah, uh, I wouldn't be where I was, where I am, if I didn't work for him. So. Do you ever, do you ever now, with your relationships with players, um, Is is there is there black and white as far as your relationship goes? Uh, is there do you have like sort of your 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 side to, with them where you're like a mentor? You you care about them. You're maybe like a, I've heard coaches kind of say like they consider themselves sort of like an uncle to the to their players. Like in a way, you're not their you're not their dad, but you're you're more than just a, a coach to them. Um, but I think that sometimes. You see some coaches, and I wouldn't say it's like this because you, you have success on the field, but some coaches who want to be like too much, like they want to be the friend to, to the players, and, and they don't want to, they, they don't take enough of a, like an authority figure uh, type, of, type of stance. Do you have sort of a black and white where you really draw the line here, or do you, um, is there a lot of gray area there for you, and, and, and is there a place, I guess, where you feel like I can't let myself get too close to players because I still do have to coach them and I've got to be hard on them sometimes. Like, how do you balance that relationship with your players? Yeah, that's a, that's a tough, uh, that's one of the tough parts of coaching, but I, so I don't really consider myself a drill sergeant where I'm just barking orders and after practice, you know, you don't know me anymore. Um, I think for me, I have to realize that every single recruit is different. Some comes from, a, some recruits come from a really supportive family. Some recruits come from families that aren't so supportive. And some uh, some players have been through really traumatic experiences, and some players haven't. And so, we have to take that fall semester uh, after we after we learn about them in the recruiting process, of course. But we have to take that fall semester and realize what's going to motivate this player, and, and how do I need to how do I need to treat this player um, to to make him feel comfortable in, in, in our program. And so, we don't treat everybody the same. I don't think that's what coaching is all about. If you're a great coach, then you have to realize. Uh, what motivates each player and sometimes it's just as much as caring about somebody you know I mean we might have a player that that barely affords college who comes from a home that that wasn't uh, that wasn't what he probably envisions and now all of a sudden he's got these mentors in their coaches and then maybe there's maybe the seniors on the team and now they feel like a like a like a human being that's contributing to society and it's is bumping their confidence, and they're really good at baseball now. Um, so I, 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 re- I really like to be well-rounded with that, um, especially the freshmen. We look for signs of homesickness. If I see any, I'm calling them to the office immediately because I, re- I want to retain that player. I don't want him to leave McPherson College. I, I want I want to be I want to be there for him if he has an issue. Um, you know, I've had players call me with personal issues that that, that they want my advice on, um, and of course, if it's if it's too personal, you have to draw the line. I haven't had a situation like that, but um, I don't think a coach in this day and age can just go out, bark orders, and go home. I think that I think those days are over, and um, I think each kid deserves your your undivided attention in, in, in different ways. Do you find that it's it's di- more it's difficult to be 
like hard on players when you need to be hard on them, the more of a personal relationship you have with them? Um, or does it become even easier because they know that you actually care about more than just wins and losses in their, in their batting average? I think the latter. I think it becomes easier uh, when you become that figure. And I'm somebody who has no problem jumping on somebody. Um, if, if, they're, if they're threatening the culture of, 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 our, of, our, uh, of our college, at, you know, I've been first in college, or they're jeopardizing the culture of my program, our program, I should say, I have no problem jumping on somebody. I think at the end of the day, they're going to know why I did that. But, hey, I've made mistakes, too. I've probably jumped on somebody too early or didn't jump on somebody when I should have. But I think most of the time I make the right decision. I think they understand where I'm coming from. How about your on-field philosophy as far as what kind of offense you want to have, you know, what what you'd like your pitching staff to look like, um, you know, how you believe you are going to win games. Can you can you kind of trace that back to its roots, you know, when you first started to, uh, I guess, the, the philosophy you have now, <clears throat> when and where did that start for you? Was there, was there a coach? Was there a team that you were on? Was it the kind of baseball you played or watched growing up? Um, you know, where, where, did you, where did you sort of start to, to put together the philosophy you have today? This is the best question you've asked me because I, I, I love answering this one. And so, you know, when I was growing up playing, um, I played in numerous programs that were a little, played a little smaller, you know, drag, push, squeeze, uh, hit and run, hit by the runner, uh, go the other way. Uh, and so... Believe me, I still have a lot of that in me, but uh, it, a lot of it's changed. And it, and it almost, it's weird for me to say this. I never thought I would. But now we want guys that are going to get extra base hits. We don't really do a lot of bunting anymore. Um, but on second base, no out. I mean, when I was young, for me as a player, it used to be an automatic bunt. And it's not anymore. Uh, I, I, sometimes I prefer to have three chances to drive mid rather than on the third. Um, we want guys at our park, Jeff. Our park is so offensive, and I'm an offensive guy, but it's so offensive to where I want to bash my head through the dugout wall. I mean, the wind is usually blowing out, and so I'm not giving up outs that are field a lot. Um, we're, we're, we want guys to hit the ball in the air. We want to see the numbers on the outfielders' backs, and um, I'll give 3-0 swings. I do these things that I didn't think I'd do. We have a fantastic hitting coach. Um, that believes in a lot of this and kind of kind of um, inspired me to get on his side a little bit. His name's Kyle McKinnon. Um, but offensively, we're just a little bit more power-heavy now, and um, anybody in our lineup can hit the ball over the fence, and a lot of it is because of where we play. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm still going to run, and, I'll, and we'll bunt if we, if, we, if we need to, but it's a little bit more rare than it used to be. On the mound, we want to punch people out. We don't really want the ball in play at our field. Uh, we play have a beautiful field, turf infield, grass outfield. Um, but again, it's a hot yard. So if we can punch guys out and keep the ball from being in play, um, that's going to be to our benefit. So, you know, we're, we want hard throwers, guys with strikeout stuff. And there's still, there is still spots available for people who don't do those things. Don't get me wrong. I mean, the, the guy that comes in and says he's 80 to 82 and keeps guys off balance, that guy still exists. Um, we still have guys that uh, play a little smaller, hit behind the runner, and lay down bunts. Those guys still exist, but we're really focused on um, a, a bigger approach now, I'd say. So it, it's, it's changed over the years, man. It's really weird. Do you think those things have changed 
just because people have found a better way or has the game itself uh, evolved where you have to do it this way? Or in your case, is it because of your field? Like if you played at a field that was a graveyard, um, you know, if you played at a, at, a, at a field that had big time dimensions and like you just really guys weren't going to hit the ball over the wall there, would you play a different style? Or do you believe that the game in, in 2020, going into 2021, the game calls for for these types of things to be successful? Like, wh I mean, why do you think things have changed from, you know, when you were a younger player, even when you first got into coaching, until kind of what your philosophy has uh, evolved to? The field plays a big part. And we so we make sure we work on the small game because we're going to use a little bit of it when we go on the road. Um, so the field plays a big part. But, man, uh, Jeff, I know that your baseball knowledge is way strong. And Major League Baseball has changed, too. Um they're just not doing a lot of that now, and they want guys to punch people out, and they want to hit the ball over the fence. And I, I'm going to say this, and I'm going to catch a lot of flack about it, but baseball, to the common fan, is getting a little boring. And uh, I, I reference that with, with Major League Baseball in mind because so many times now, the ball is not in play very often. You're either getting struck out or you're hitting a double or a home run. You're not seeing a lot of traffic. You're not seeing the ball in play. You're not seeing a lot of um, a lot of defensive web gems like you would, and people are hitting into shifts, and I think that that's boring for the common fan. It's not boring for me because we use all, we use all those things, but I think major, what Major League Baseball doing doing is trickling down to the lower levels too. No question. What you know? What what happens in Major League Baseball often trickles down. And uh, I don't know how far it's trickled down. You know, I don't, I don't go out and watch youth games, but I know that's a thing in college. You know, one of my jobs as a college coach, and I really loved doing this. I don't know why I loved it so much, but I loved it. I was the defensive, um, basically, I don't know what you'd call it, but I, I set up, I positioned the defense uh, at several schools where I was, and I loved to do it. And I was one of the first guys I felt like in college that put on, like, major shifts, like at Moorhead State, we play so the Ohio Valley Conference in, in uh, uh, Division One Conference that Moorhead State is in is very offensive. A lot of small parks. Um, Moorhead State Park, if the wind's blowing out, is kind of a joke. Sometimes you have football scores there, um, and like you, kind of like you, we wanted pitchers that <laughs> weren't going to let guys put the ball in play because on certain days you could, if you barreled a ball to certain parts of the field up in the air, it was going it was a home run. Um, so we, you know, we wanted to recruit that kind of player, but we would, uh, we were playing Tennessee Tech in particular, who was a real powerhouse at the time. And I think that year they had seven or eight guys drafted or whatever, and some some big, big strong guys in their lineup. And we were shifting them to like where your your opposite side middle infielder was on the pull side of second base. And at, at that time, that was you know 2013. And you just didn't see a whole lot of that at any level and. But it's like, look at the spray charts. Like the guy can't hit a ground ball to that side. Like this is our only shot to get him out. <laughs> and if he tries to hit an opposite field single, I'm going to be thrilled to death. And uh, but I, I love doing that kind of stuff. So I don't feel like that part of the game is boring. But I agree with you that a lot of casual fans do. Now I don't think that part of the game is boring. But I'm going to be honest with you, Coach. I don't particularly get a kick out of watching a game and seeing 30 combined strikeouts for the 54 outs in a game. It just doesn't – if it was once in a while, it's one thing. Like, it's it's one thing to go watch, like, an incredible pitching performance where you have two starters that go deep into a game and both strike out, like, double-digit guys. 
but but it happens every day now and like everybody out of the bullpen's throwing hard and like mediocre it seems like mediocre starting pitchers strike out a guy in inning and, and a really good you know starters really good relievers have uh, a lot more strikeouts than innings pitch and it's just that's the game and it's uh it's I, I don't find it particularly interesting and I don't find it particularly interesting to watch that there are there are very few stolen bases um except the Padres. <laughs> I don't know if you ever look at Major League stats, but for whatever reason, the Padres are running nuts this year so far in 2020. Uh, but, but teams aren't stealing bases. There's, not, um, there's no sort of hit and runs. Uh, I, might, you know, I might be one of the only people in the country, but I love National League play without the DH, and it breaks my heart that there's a DH in the National League. Not that I like watching a pitcher hit, but I like that it makes a manager think a little bit. And I like the fact that they have to use their bench strategically. And I like the fact that you've got to think about that kind of stuff before you make a relief pitching change. And I like that in Major League Baseball. I like seeing some strategy as opposed to just throwing guys out there and, like, you know, this is kind of what we're going with and the manager's almost taken out of the game. And I might be in the minority for all those things, but I, that's how I feel at this point about Major League Baseball. And I wish that there were more balls put in play. I, I wish that occasionally a guy would just – especially with the guy in scoring position who would just try to cut down on a swing and just not strike out. But yeah, I'm the, with you on a lot of those things. I really am. Uh, the National League, I like that it's always been different where the pitcher hits the National League and the American League doesn't because then we could see you know, how managers coach in each league. Um, I don't particularly like to watch the pitcher hit with two outs and nobody on. <laughs> but I think I think it becomes interesting as the game goes on when there's so many things you could do. There's double switches. Um, and then, yeah, you have to use your bench. But, you know, the pitching, the strikeouts, I'm with you. I mean, unless you're actually coaching in the game, you're not really enthused by watching all the strikeouts. Um, however, the stuff that the pitchers have is pretty entertaining for me. I mean, so... Like, opening day, Clayton Kershaw had a back issue, and they scratched him, and they, and they put in Dustin May to pitch to start the game. The guy's throwing 99-mile-an-hour two-seamers. I mean, that's the, unbelievable. They're like left-handed sliders. They're like plus left-handed sliders. Yeah, yeah <laughs> and he wasn't even supposed to start. And that guy just comes off the bench, <laughs> and he just starts throwing 99-mile-an-hour two-seams. And so... Pitchers are just, their stuff is disgusting, and um, that's why we're seeing all the strikeouts. I, I really enjoy seeing their stuff, but I would like to see defenders work. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, it's not happening as much, and it won't as long as as long as pitchers are able to, uh, to feature stuff like this. But, you know, I think the harder people throw, uh, you know, we're seeing a lot of injuries to pitchers, and so that's another scary part of it. But, you know, you talk about the bunting. And putting the ball in play more, you know, the, the Astros and Dodgers went into extra innings the other day, and of course they start with runner on second base now. And um, they went through two full innings each, so they they each had two. They each hit. They each hit twice. And no one bunted. Not a bunt. Um, and so, I mean, it just goes to show you how much it's changing. Um, but. I don't know. If you're going to play two or three innings in extra, in extra innings where you've got a runner starting at second base, if you go that long without scoring, that's not good. Well, I you thought I mean? for sure with this style of play, I thought it was going to be almost an automatic bunt if the visiting team did not score, the home team's yeah. up in the bottom of the inning, one run wins it, guy on second base, nobody out. Obviously, the, the where you are in the order dictates part of it, but I thought it would be an almost automatic bunt, and it shocked me that that hasn't been the case so far. 
Right, right. And it was two veteran managers, too. You know, Dusty Baker and Dave Roberts, and even those guys. No but. So I don't know if it's wrong or right, um, but I'm going to tell you what. Depending on where I am in my lineup, if the visiting team doesn't score, um, depending on where I am in my lineup, ah, man, I'm going to be at least tempted to, to bunt right. um, the next sitting. Yeah. Now, at the NAIA level, you know, I think that a lot of those things we just talked about trickle down a lot, but one of them is just how good players are. I think player development um, is better now, and I think that you see more velocity at every level of college baseball as well as high school baseball at this point. Uh, for people that aren't familiar with NAIA baseball, like what's a good NAIA pitcher? I mean, can you kind of give me your, – your team is pretty good. Uh, and, and started out really well in, in 2020. But, like, across the board, your conference, guys, that, teams that you would see in the postseason, you, you kind of uh, – can you give me a, a, a breakdown of, like, what are your what are your top couple starters? Let's start in the mound, because the mound is, is an easier place to, to, to give a, a visual, you know, on a phone call because you can we can talk about velocities and things like that and, and size of guys or whatever. Like, what are your top couple – uh, weekend starters like? Can you kind of talk about what the stuff is like for those guys for you? Yeah, the pitching staff this year is reshaped, but I can say that the pitchers that we recruited who are coming in, um, we went to watch them. So we've seen a handful of our of our starters touch 90, um, and then I would say that uh, there's probably one or two that will, that will maybe sit 90 to 92 for at least a while. Um, uh, remains to be seen, but again, that's that's what we showed up and and, and, and watched them and, and saw. And you, as an associate scout, know that um, you know it's important to get to get velocity. And so we we got a large sample size of that, and we're bringing them in. So we hope our weekend starters are around there. But you know, 2019, when we won 36 games, our ace, and it's quote unquote ace, um, it was kind of a it was kind of a competition. But Dylan Marble. Uh, he was a mid-80s guy. He went, he went to a JUCO. He went to Danville Area Community College um, in Illinois. And uh, he was a little more of a mid-80s guy. He had a fantastic changeup that he commanded in, like, every one of his starts. So our ace that year wasn't, like, a flamethrower. But we had the reliever of the year coming out of the pen, Jared Manick, who actually got some, some love from some scouts. Uh, I mean, the guy touched 90 numerous times from the left side and threw a wipeout slider. So you kind of don't know what you're going to get in the NAI. We really saved our best arms that year for the pen. Um, and uh, it, it, it helped us. We went to the pen kind of early, so starters got pissed off. Um, but, you know, we, that's the way we wanted to line it up. So it's different. It's different for everybody. The NAI is really spread out. You know, you could face a guy that, that's 90-92 on Friday, and then Saturday you go in there, and they've got a lefty summer at 81, and you got to adjust. So it's just kind of spread out. What about some of the other teams that you see? Like, can you give? Can you kind of range like what you're going to see on a weekend? So for people that aren't like really familiar with college baseball, when we talk about weekend starters, basically those are your top guys. That's where you're playing conference games. That's where your number one, two, three, four guys. If you you know some some uh, some conferences play three games in a weekend, some play four, but that's where your best starters are pitching. Can you kind of talk about what you would typically see? And you can go give me the whole range. You know, the best team in the conference, this is what we saw. The worst team in the conference, this is what we saw. I just want to give people like an overall idea of what you find at, at the NAIA level, because it's a really intriguing level to me. Yeah, I'll give you an example. My first year, 
um, we faced Oklahoma Wesleyan, and at, t- at the time they were ranked third in the country, and our program wasn't ready to really stand up to them. Although we, I should know, we took a game in that series. So, uh, but at uh, we faced a kid in a night game, and I mean this dude is throwing 82, 83 mile an hour sliders. I mean, just disappearing, and of course, it's fastballs 91 to 93, and so they had, not only did they have guys that were at least, you know, 88 to 92 for every single game of the weekend, but then they also had guys coming out of the pen from different arm slots. Um, I mean, it was, it was just gross. I mean, it was just really tough to put an inning together offensively against them, um, and so, like, that's probably the best staff I saw was that year. Um, but uh, usually you're going to see, um, you know, I guess there's times where you're going to see uh, mid to high 80s um, for a three-pitch mix where they command all of them. Um, and then, uh, you know, some of the programs that might be struggling that year uh, just won't have the stuff to be able to compete and will jump on them offensively. But um, that, that staff at Oklahoma Wesleyan was, um, was probably the best I saw at the NAI level, and we're hoping to kind of mirror that as we move forward. I, I know that from other guys I've talked to at NAIA, it's it's just surprising how good of players there are there. And, and for people that aren't familiar with NAIA, it's a uh, it, it's I don't know if you call it a competitor, but it's a different sort of governing body. Like the NCAA is a governing body, and in the NAIA is a different different governing body that that schools um, are a part of. And I I believe strongly that you could take top 25 NAIA schools, pluck them out of their conference, and, and you know, pop them into a, a mid-major type of Division One conference, and those schools would compete for a conference championship. Not just compete, but like compete to be one of the better teams in that conference. I, I really think that the top NAIA schools are that good. You know, and it's the same thing at the bottom. You know, the bottom of NAIA schools are, are not very good, but I think you're going to see a wide range of um, of talent, but the most talented teams in the country could stand up to a lot of Division ones, and I think that, and I wanted to talk about this, Coach, because I think that uh, there are certain pockets of the country in particular, where I'm from in Pennsylvania, very few NAIs around here, and people, um, you know, kids, they, they don't know anything about NAIA, so they don't give it a serious look. Of like, If you were to call a kid from Pennsylvania, it's doubtful that that kid would give you much um, much attention, at least in the first phone call, because they're just not familiar with the level. And I think it's a natural assumption to think that, well, the talent's just not as good. That's just not true at the really good team, you know, at, at the at the better teams at that level. So I, I think it's an important thing to, to discuss. Uh, what about your bullpen? Can you kind of talk about, I'm sure you have a, a range of, of guys that, that actually, you know, that pitch on a regular basis, but can you sort of give me, you know, maybe two guys at opposite ends of the spectrum, like this is one of the, you, you kind of mentioned that left-hander that you had, um, but can you give us a, a little bit of an idea of what you have coming out of your bullpen, guys that you will throw on a regular basis? Yeah, no problem. And, yeah, going back to what you were saying, there's some, there's some mid-majors that really struggle. And I've seen them, and, and, and yeah, I mean, it's very spread out. Um, the NAI is very good, but I do need to say that in the NAI, sometimes there are players that are just they're just cognitively not understanding um, every step of the game, where, where maybe in the NCAA at higher levels, they're going to kind of get it a little more. I um, hope that makes sense. Uh, bull, bullpen question, um, you know, 
we again we do save a lot of our high velocity guys for the pen. Um, we feel like if we do that, we can become deeper than than our opponents. We don't know if our opponents are as deep in their staff as we are, and so we want to kind of be able to bring in some of our best arms in important situations. So um, we'll have a hard thrower here and there um, in our pen to come in in big situations. Guys will strike out stuff. Um, but we've also recruited a kid this year, um, uh, Jacob Gilcrease, who went to Bowser Parish. And he's a submarine guy. I mean, he's scraping his knuckles on the ground when he's when he's pitching. And he's going to be able to give um, hitters a different look. And so we, we would see him to be able to throw in a big role in our bullpen. You know, a lot of NAI players don't see that guy every day, you know, that kind of an arm angle. Uh, there's a player in our conference who, who, um, who pitches like that as well. He's been very successful. So it's kind of a wide variety. And then we were really interesting in years past um, because we had that left-handed reliever, that closer, Jared Bannock. Um, we were the only team that we faced who had a left-handed closer. Um, and so, you know, I, I think that he was really unique, too, with his stuff. So we're going to kind of build our pen a little bit different than most NAIs, would I say. The way that you start, it sounds like you run your team. It's, it's unique. And that's one of the cool things about college baseball. We, we were talking about Major League Baseball a bit. And one of the things about Major League Baseball, for better or for worse, everyone sort of does it the same way. You know, except like the Rays, they they started doing the the opener, but it's rare in in high or in in, uh, in Major League Baseball that a team sort of steps out from the norm. Uh, but in college baseball, like you see so many cool things. Like if you, your team, you said you guys go to the bullpen early, and your your starters might not like it, but that's kind of how you build your team. To you you have a strong bullpen, and and you want to use those guys in big situations and it's just it's cool how that kind of stuff happens even at the major level um i mentioned that i, I got a job at winthrop when I, when I went to winthrop our first year we went and played at texas a&m and texas a&m strategy was basically like they had a couple guys at the back of the bullpen and they weren't just like one inning closers they were like three inning closers and sometimes they would go back to back if the starter struggled and and then you saw uh probably a couple years after that mississippi state I think it was Mississippi State was in the like the College World Series and and they're getting like two innings out of their starters and going to the bullpen and it was like you know if your only familiarity was of, of baseball was Major League Baseball you're like what are these guys doing but in college call you know college uh, coaches are willing to be more creative of how to use their team and just how to win a game like in in in, in college ball it's like you. You truly, guys, truly manage of how can I possibly take this group of 35 guys I have and win? And in Major League Baseball, it's like, boy, I don't want to step on anybody's toes. Sometimes, like, I don't want to, I don't want to hurt anybody's ego. And and I think that's that's always a really cool thing to me about college ball. Yeah, I think you're right. And we had a lot of success last year and the year before with um, with using an opener. We have one seven inning game on the weekend, and we used openers for those games. And so. We'd come in, we'd start the game with a, with a back-end bullpen guy. He'd throw the first two innings, and we'd pull him out of there, and then, and then we'd put the starter in. And the starter would go maybe the next four, and then we'd, we'd, go, we'd come in with, with our closer. And so uh, we got guys accustomed to those roles. And, uh, and again, I, I think it helped. I think it helped us take early leads. And then the starter all of a sudden comes in, and he's got a lead. And it's like, hey, this is nice. I didn't start the game, but now I'm in the third inning, and I've got a lead. So, you know, we... We really went with a lot of different methods in order to use uh, our entire depth. What's the thought process there? I, I think, again, Major League, even Major League Baseball fans, they just don't like 
change. Now, I don't like change either, <laughs> but I don't like to change like um, – I don't like that the National League has a DH in 2020. I don't like that sort of change. I like what I like. You know, I, I like traditional baseball. But I don't mind seeing things like an opener. I think it's cool to see teams being creative. Can you talk a little bit about that? Like what's, you know, most people would look at what you did as, as being backwards. You know, typically you go starter, reliever, reliever, game over in a, in, a, in, a, in a game that goes like you plan it. Why go reliever, starter, or reliever? Like, what does that do? What, what kind of advantage do you think that gives you? Well, I don't think it's advantageous enough to use those philosophies of nine-inning games. So if all of our games were nine innings, I'm not sure we would go that direction. But in the seven-inning game, I think when you come in and, and you start the game with, with, with a guy that has electric stuff, usually those back-end bullpen guys have have good stuff and, and could strike guys out and, and will limit will limit hard contact. I think it's kind of a momentum swing for us. If that guy can come in and does what he does what he can do for two innings, he could strike out four of the four of the six outs he has, or um, he could throw two shutout innings. Um, in the meantime, if we're getting to their starter, um, then then we have a lead, and I think it's really really refreshing for the starting pitcher, quote unquote, to be able to come in in the third or, in the third or fourth inning and say, hey. I'm, I'm considered myself a starter, but now I'm coming in, and um, and I have a lead, and, and I think he's instantly settled down, um, and, and I think that um, that he could pitch well in that situation. I also think that those back end relievers can come in and have a, they've already they're adrenaline junkies anyways, um, and so when the game starts, there's adrenaline to that, so they're just going to use that for two innings. We tell them, you know, go out there and throw the hell out of the baseball. Do not change anything you do if you're going to open a game and they've listened and, and it, for us it's worked if, it, if it's been a, if, it, if we have a large sample size where it's not working then we, we would just bang it um, but you know it, it's worked it's worked with those guys and um, I think that also with hitters you're seeing back end bullpen guys to start the game and I think that's weird, that's weird for hitters you know they're not used to seeing that guy right away um, and so I think it, it, it creates some uncomfortableness early in the game with 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 our opposing offense, and I think they continue to stay uncomfortable as, as the game goes on because they're not quite sure, you know, what what's going on with what we're going to do with our pitchers. And I also think there's something to it where if you don't see the same guy, you know, twice to the lineup or a few times to the lineup, it's tougher to hit. I mean, if you're if you're seeing a guy, a different guy every time through the lineup. I mean, you're you're at a disadvantage offensively. You've got nothing that you've learned about that pitcher the second time you come up. So I think all those reasons are why the uh, the opener, if you have the people for it, can can be uh, can be a positive thing. When you say have the people for it, what do you need to be able to have the opener make you know be successful, have a chance at success? Like even at the whether you're at the college level or or the major league level because teams tried it, other teams tried it and didn't work as much as the Rays. Uh, what what do you think you need? I mean, when what what does your personnel have to look like for that to make sense? You got to be deep, and uh, you know what? I was smart enough to understand my first year when we basically inherited the team. We didn't have time to recruit that year, even though that was probably my uh, my most enjoyable year in coaching. Um, we didn't have we didn't have the bodies to be able to do that. We had a guy that was really good. We had a, sort of our ace that year and um, you know if we started him he was going to go a long time and then two days later after he threw 120 pitches 
um, you know, two days before, I would say, how you feeling? And he would say, ah, I don't know. And I'd be like, well, warm up, let me know. <laughs> so, so we kind of used that guy a lot. Um, and we just didn't have the bodies to be able to have an opener or be able to um, have a different guy face the lineup every time through. We just didn't have it. So if you don't have it yet, if you don't have that depth yet, you can't do it. Just don't do it yet. Um, but once you build it, if you want to go in that direction, I think it's worth testing. But you, you got to have the talent. So I'm a I'm an avid Pittsburgh Pirates fan. God love the Pirates and um, and God love the Pirate fans. But they tried it last year a couple times, and they did it with starters who were known to have very high pitch counts. Guys that like couldn't get it, you know couldn't get out of the fifth inning pitch count wise. So they'd put a they'd have an opener, but the guy they 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 use this one particular guy uh, several times, and I think the guy probably ended up with somewhere between a five and a seven ERA. And it's like, in those situations, it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense to start the game losing. Uh, it's like the opposite of what you said. Like, you're going to throw basically a, a a guy who's fighting to be on the team as a middle reliever, not a late-inning guy, you know, but, like, fighting to be on the team as a middle reliever. You're just going to have him throw an inning. That way you can get your starter, hopefully, you know, from either innings two through five or three through six, then you can go to the back end of your bullpen to feel better about things. But you're still a lot of times that you're starting out the game uh, behind, and it does that didn't make any sense to me. Whereas the Rays seem to do it. Um, I know, like Ryan Stanek, no relation to me. Um, you would know if, if you saw both of us play. We are nothing alike. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, but uh, but you know, he was one of the Rays openers, and his numbers for the year were phenomenal. Um, and most of them he's putting up a zero in the first inning or first two innings or whatever he would throw. And, and that's just, it's like, if you don't have the personnel to do it, like, why are you bothering to do it? You're throwing one of your worst guys in the first inning. And, yeah, you might get better as the game goes along. I guess there, maybe there's a different philosophy to it. You know, do you want to start your start the game? If four guys are going to pitch today, when do you want to have the the worst of the – if you had to rank all four of those guys – you know, when do you want your worst guy to throw? Do you want your worst guy to throw first? Do you want him to throw, you know, in a, in a nine-inning game, do you want him to throw the, the fifth or sixth inning? Like, I don't know. He's got to throw sometime. I guess it's just a matter of opinion. But, uh, like, I'd be interested to know for you, you said you, you this past year, you would go to your bullpen early, which I'm assuming that means you have a lot of confidence. You have, you have, you have good depth and you have confidence in guys in your bullpen. Did you feel like you got – better as the game went along not to insult anybody in your team but if you felt like you got better as the game went along is that is that something that you felt like you had an advantage like if you got to in a nine again a nine inning game if you got to the fifth or sixth inning you know i know there are teams out there who felt like if we if we get there we have such good back on back into the bullpen arms like we feel like we're going to win if we're even close if we're if we're within a couple runs at that point of the game but is there another thought process that says like well, if we start every game, if we're not, if we're if we're losing at the beginning of every game, it's and we're playing comeback, we're trying to come back every game like that could also present its own challenges. Can you kind of talk a little bit about just your thought process with that, if that makes sense? I'm and I'm sort of rambling now. Yeah, no problem. First of all, I think maybe the Pirates ought to scrap that. Let's let's bring back those early '90s Pirates. Let's get Bonds in center, Van Slyken, Bonds in left, Van Slyken in center. Let's get Bobby Boney on that team, Jay Bell, Jay Bell, Jeff King. Yeah, Jeff King, and don't forget about Jim Leland smoking the heater in the dugout. We we need to 
we need to revisit those days. Um, <laughs> those are those are more simple days. But I mean, to answer your question, I think um, I, we, we, we weren't we weren't playing a lot of catch up baseball last year, and so that was part of the reason why we stuck with it. Now we didn't get as good of a year from our closer in 2020 as we did in 2019. Um, but um, he was still serviceable and was able to get out at the end of the game, and we added some more bullpen pieces in 2020. So considering the fact that we were taking early leads and we were giving, we were giving the baseball to our bullpen um, in, those, in those games, uh, fairly early in the game, and still winning them, uh, we didn't want to change our philosophy there. I mean, at one point, uh, we were 18-4. We were um, and so it's tough to want to change your change your philosophies when, when you're 18 and four. And I think the players, if we did change our philosophy in the middle of that kind of a run, I think they'd be like, "Why? Why are we doing it differently now?" So we started with that philosophy and stuck with it, um, and it was working. But of course, all, all for naught because COVID nineteen swept in. Yeah, it's an interesting, just interesting thing for me thought process for the, you know, for coaches. What what did you see in your team that kind of took you into the spring and let you talk to your assistants and say, like, this is what we should do? You know, what did you see from your team that you decided that's what was going to happen? You know, what I saw was there were times last year where we were second in the country in a lot of offensive categories, and we returned almost all of our offensive players. Um, so we went out and got a couple key position players, but we knew we needed to go get I just told our staff we're going to spend money on pitching. We're going to spend all our money on pitching. And so um, we've gone out and, and gotten some big arms. The only players that we lost last year were really some of our arms. Um, and we've been able to uh, be left. When, when you have a recruiting class where you know your current team is kind of set offensively and you've got this money that you can spend on just pitchers, that's kind of exciting, right? So we went out and just spent – uh, money uh, on pitchers and judging off of what we saw from our team in 2020, we knew that's what we wanted to do. So we'll see how that works. What are scholarship opportunities like at the NAIA level? They're very strong, but it's a case-by-case basis. So every school is different. Um, you know, obviously the NCAA Division One level can give out 11.7. Uh, the NAIA can actually give out 12 fulls. Um, but not every NAI institution is going to choose to do that. Um, we're pretty fortunate um, here. I mean, uh, we're we're able to we're able to give out some money. I mean, we're not able to give out as much money as a lot of NAIs in the country. Um, but um, you can give out 12 full scholarships, whereas in the NCAA, you can give out 11.7. Now, again, some of these schools they're small and they're operated very intimately, and so. Not every NAI is going to choose to invest that much in, in their athletic programs, but by rule, the NAI can actually give out more money um, than, than, than the NCAA. So uh, at times that can work to a school's advantage, and at times it, it doesn't. But the NAIs are kind of on an unlevel playing field. And I say that because, I mean, you've got um, my school, for example, where um, tuition, just tuition, is about thirty-two thousand uh, dollars, and of course, there's more for for room and board. But you get a school like uh, like Lewis and Clark State, or I believe Faulkner, if I'm not speaking out of turn, maybe even Georgia Gwinnett. Those kinds of schools, they're state-run or they have very low tuition, so they can get a lot of guys in there and not have to pay as much money as I do 
for the players that I grabbed. So, yeah, that's probably the flaw with the scholarship system in the NAI. Is there's, there's a lot of schools aren't on a level playing field, but you know, we don't talk about that with our players. But since, since you asked, I thought I would throw that in. Yeah. As a coach with the doctorate, I'm assuming there are a lot of other things you could be doing. Why? Why do you coach baseball? Why? Why did you decide this was the path you were going to take? This is what you wanted to do uh, with the education that you have and and the experience that you have. Why be a baseball coach? Yeah, I just really enjoy seeing 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 athletes develop and knowing that I made a that I was a part of it. Um, I like this age group; they make me feel youthful. Um, I like to see them um, excited when they when they succeed, and I like to I like to watch how they deal with their failures, and I like to make a difference in their lives when necessary. But right now, I'm a coach, and I, I'm at McPherson College, and I've got the best coaching staff in the NAI. I mean, we've built this thing to where you know we could talk about what we want to do at practice and, and I'll put the plan in for practice but as far as the execution of the plan uh, my coaches are going to execute it and they're so good that it allows me to um, kind of back off a little bit and be able to just observe everything that's going on and kind of take mental notes I mean without a doubt I lead the charge with our recruiting um, but um, they're so good at supporting um, myself and then the, the rest of the athletic department it would be tough to want to leave that right now and so I think that kind of answers your question. It does. There are uh, there's there's quite a bit of noise on social media about how um, you know, we, and we've talked about it. How baseball is not fun. It's not in a good place right now. It's it's boring to watch. There's a lot of crap going on at at, at like lower level travel. You know, eight U travel tournaments. Um, but I personally just still. I just love the game. I just I love the game itself. You know, for you right now, what's 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 good about baseball to you? I mean, what still gives you the thrill of, of, of watching games, recruiting, coaching, whatever it is? Like, what is it about baseball that you kind of mentioned a little bit? But I mean, what's right with the game right now? Why is this still something that you think? You know, to me, baseball is something that I think kids can learn a lot from. I think kids can kind of. Um, you know, set themselves up to have a lot of success in their life based on what they learn from baseball. There's a lot of good things from it. There's so much good if if the parents and the coaches don't screw it up. Um, there's a, there's so much good about baseball. But 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 for you, you know, what's good about baseball today? What's good about baseball in 2020? I think that no matter how different the game gets, there's still life lessons in this sport, and they'll last forever. And I get them every day. I'm not a player anymore, but that will never change. And that is the best thing about baseball now. Um, the other part about baseball that I find interesting, and I remember I, I referenced the common fan earlier. Of course, I'm not the common fan. So what's good about baseball to me is watching how all the new uh, philosophies work. Um, so when I see shifts or when I see a four-man outfield or um, – when I see a starting pitcher that doesn't even throw from the windup, he just throws from the stretch. Um, to me, for me to be able to watch that and then review the data on it, it's really exciting to me. And coaches that want to learn 
and be able to look at those things, that's a really good part about baseball too because we could start spreading that. And I think that when a coach looks at something that seems odd in baseball, hasn't been done before, but if you look at a large sample size of data and it proves to you that it's working and you try and you start to install it, I think that's a good part about baseball. I mean, you know, it, it's different and people have to adjust. Um, but I think that looking at what's working it is is fun. And um, coaches that want to learn and, 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 and coaches that want to, I guess, contribute to that, that's another good part about the game right now. With all the uh, all the social media noise, again, uh, about what's wrong with baseball, if there were one or two things that you had uh, the, the power or the say to change about our game right now at any level, about the game on the field or about how it's being run or how kids are being taught or whatever else, if you, if you could pinpoint a couple things that you wish were different or you wish that, that would change uh, with our sport right now, what would those be? Oh, man, that's a toughie. Um, well, I don't know. Maybe I'm old school. I don't really like the slide rule. I don't really like that um, at second base. I think that I think that's tough. I'm going to say something really weird to answer this question. Um, but something that really bothers me about the game, and, I, and it's not just in the NAI. I've seen it at, I've seen it in the Ivy League, is uh, I think that we just need umpires to come in and call a rule book strike zone and manage the game and understand that they're not what everybody came to watch that day. You know, I get very frustrated when I watch the live stream or playback of our game and, you know, called strikes that would hit left-handed batters to righties are being called. And we teach our kids not to overreact to that and to come back to the dugout and not pout about it. But when I have players who never pout and come back to me and say that, you know, I can't reach that pitch, and then I just tell them to go sit down, we'll talk about it later. And then I watch the live stream, it's like, why? Why are you calling that a Like, you know it's not a strike. You know it's not. It's in the other batter's box, but you're calling it a strike. Why are you doing that? You know, and I think that, I think that we've got to start to make sure that we I guess call a rule book strike zone, uh, manage the game better. We've had some issues with that. And so I know that sounds really weird and maybe a little, a little bit on the complaining spectrum, but, you know, that part of it can bother me from time to time. Well, it bothers you as a coach because you want your kids to just have a fair chance to compete. And, and when the when the umpires take the game out of your hands, it's it, that's, that's like the one time it's just tough to – it's tough to just kind of say, well, that's that's part of the game. Umpires are part of the game. I mean, you just, you know, the good umpire is the one you don't notice, right? The good umpire is the one who just, like you said, calls it by the book. And, and it's uh, obviously on any close call, especially people in the stands, you're going to have one one team or the other that's not going to be happy about it. But if it's a close pitch, it's, as a coach, I think most coaches can, okay, that was close. I can see it. Right, but when you're missing by when it's that egregious of a call, I think it's very difficult for a coach to to kind of uh, turn their cheek for that because it's it's hurting their players who you care about, right? Yeah, I uh, mean that's that's the thing that bothers me. We teach them not to swing at that pitch, and now it's getting called for seven innings. So, in the middle of the game, this is kind of a, a spinoff question. I was going to shut it down, but I'd like to ask you this: if you if you see that that's going to be the strike zone. 
do you ask your guys to change? Like they're basically in the middle of the game. Do you say, okay, we need to swing at that pitch today, or do you do you kind of stick with like that's not a strike, so we're not going to create that habit? How do you handle that in the middle of the game? You have to change. You know, I mean, you don't have a choice. And so, you know, what we've noticed is the outside corner is very wide, very very wide, and we've noticed the inside corner is not that way at all. So, get on the plate. Get on the plate and fight. I mean, it's not it's not what you've been taught to do, but that's that's kind of how we'll change our, our approach, I guess. Yeah, and to me, you really have to have it. The, the The strike zone's got to be fluid for hitters on a day to day. I don't know if you've ever done this, but I'll, uh, you know, when I coached, I would in inner squads, I'd stand. You know, if I was umpiring, you know, a lot of times we don't you don't have you know teams college teams don't get umpires for these games for people that are listening to this. They uh, for inner squads, a lot of times the coaches or, or a player will umpire and a lot of times you're doing it from behind the mound you don't you're not gearing up behind the catcher but sometimes I would call pitches on purpose like I would have a particular strike zone on a particular day because I wanted to see how hitters would react to it I wanted to see if they'd be able to make adjustments things like that to, to sort of prepare them because at every level I think you have that and um, you know not to make any excuses but umpiring I think is more difficult now than maybe it's ever been because of of just unruly parents Parents are just so nasty, at the, especially at the younger levels. Like, I don't know why anybody wants to umpire a youth game right now. And see, that's another problem, too, is we have to be careful about how we treat umpires, especially the good ones, because we want them to keep coming back. But, yeah, I see some awful, awful footage of, like, 10 you parents just getting after it. <laughs> it's so stupid. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that you're right about that. Yeah. This is uh, Brian Moses, everybody. He's the head coach at McPherson College, an NAIA school in Kansas. Uh, this has been great. It's been a great conversation. I've really enjoyed having you here today, and I just want to thank you very much uh, for the time that you've given to uh, Figured Out Baseball and our, and our subscribers today. Yeah, and what a great job you've been doing. I mean, the website's just littered with with, with really cool interviews and um I'm really happy to see you. You're, you're helping the baseball community. So thank you for allowing me to contribute to that and, and hope we stay in touch. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's all been very pleasurable. And uh, if you haven't checked out the website, it's figuredoutbaseball.com. Hundreds of free videos on the website. A, a ton of great uh, podcasts like this, mostly with college and pro coaches. There's a lot to learn. on every, There's all the videos, of course, but on these podcasts, if, if, you'll, if you'll dig into a podcast for an hour, uh, hopefully it's entertaining for you, but there's also going to be things to learn in almost every one of them. And, and this one, like I've, I've learned things from you today, just like I do every one of these things. So there's so much out there. Hopefully you'll check them out. Uh, Coach Moses, again, thank you so much. And, and I agree with you. Hopefully we'll stay in touch. Yeah, yeah. Likewise, Jeff. Thanks again.